Hello, and welcome to the Murderosity Podcast, where we discuss all things murder, mayhem, the mysterious, and the macabre. I'm your co-host, Bob Hancock, joined on the other side by Rebel Roan. Rebel, how are you doing today? I'm doing really good. I'm really excited about this case. How are you? I am also doing very well. This is a case that you and I talked about back when we first started recording this Mm -hmm. podcast and we were going through cases. For our listeners, this is going to be a combined episode where we're combining our missing persons case with the main case. We've done this before, but just giving you a heads up. Also, trigger warnings for abuse, both domestic and against children, sexual assault, and so on. This episode is going to be pretty heavy, but it's one that we both feel is very important, and it's a story that needs to be told. Yes. So where are we going this week? Our next case takes us to Canada on Highway 16, also known as the Highway of Tears. This road is a 719-kilometer road that runs in western Canada between Prince George and Prince Rupert, British Columbia, There are long stretches of road with no cell service and thick forests that line the highway. The towns are rural and isolated with Highway 16 running through them. So where our story primarily takes place is called Prince George. Now, the origins of Prince George can be traced back to the Northwest Company fur trading post of Fort George, which was established in 1807 by Simon Fraser. And it was actually named in honor of King George III. The post was centered in the century-old homeland of the Lady Tene First Nation, whose name means people of the confluence of the two rivers. The Lady Tene name began to see official use around the 1990s, and the indigenous band is otherwise historically referred to as Fort George Indian Band. Now, throughout the 19th century, Fort George trading posts remained mostly unchanged, and Fort St. James actually reigned as the main trading post and capital of the New Caledonia area, which would later become British Columbia. Now, in 1903, the area's fortune began to change when reports said that the Grand Trunk Pacific Railway, later part of the Canadian National Railway, would pass near the fur trading post. And in 1906, the agricultural settlement began around the post. And then in 1909, development of two different town sites began as two rival land speculation companies built communities of South Fort George and Fort George, both vying for the attention of the Grand Trunk Pacific Railway. Now, properties were sold in both of the town sites with railway speculation driving prices up. And in 1913, South Fort George and Fort George each had a population of around 1,500 people, which in that area at that time was considered booming as well as thousands of railway construction workers migrating through there, and they would come to town for supplies and entertainment. So both communities believed that the Grand Trunk Pacific Station would be built in their town, but they were both disappointed because the railway actually purchased 1,366 acres of land in between them from the local indigenous tribe instead. So the new village was actually completed in 1913, with band members of the indigenous peoples moving there in September. The old village was destroyed to, quote, force the Indians away, end quote, and ensure that it was not reoccupied. So the newspaper there was the Fort George Herald, and it reported the destruction of the old village as, quote, the torch of the white man will be thrust into the remaining houses, and the village will disappear quickly in a cloud of smoke. 
Indian agent W.J. McCallan's account of the situation revealed a need on his part and the part of the Grand Trunk Pacific to strong arm the band members out, targeting two cabins in the village that were empty as residents were hinting, quote, I knew that to set fire to the cabins would cause a flare up of intense excitement and give me the break I needed for a crisis had to be created before the deadlock could be broken. So we can already see kind of an anti-indigenous feeling in that area where they're actually, they bought land from this tribe and then forced them to move to where they wanted them to by destroying their old village. Right. Now, in more modern times, for three consecutive years from 2010 to 2012, McLean's named Prince George as the most dangerous city in Canada with its crime rate being 114% above the national average. In 2011, the magazine cited gangs, drug-related crimes. There were nine homicides as the reason for its high crime rate. Although the magazine did state that the city's crime rate is declining each year. And in fact, by 2016, Prince George was named number four on the list of most dangerous cities for violent crime in Canada. On the plus side, in 2015, Prince George hosted the 2015 Canada Winter Games. So, I suppose, yay? Yeah, a little uplifting there. So, can you tell me a little bit more about this stretch of highway? Yeah. Since 1970, more than 40 people, mostly Indigenous women, have gone missing or been found murdered along this stretch of road. The most recent being October of 2023. Many of the victims were last seen hitchhiking before their disappearances. The name Highway of Tears was coined in 1998 by Florence Nazio, referring to the victims' families crying over their loved ones. There are many reasons why people are believed to have gone missing from this area, one being that it's very rural and there was no public transit until 2017, so many people hitchhiked to where they needed to go. Even now, the subsidized transit systems alternate days and only run for a 400-kilometer section between Prince George and Burns Lake. Other reasons have listed poverty, as well as possible drug and domestic violence. There is also a noted disconnect in the culture as well as animal predation, making it more difficult to find evidence as well as deceased bodies as they scatter the remains or carry them away. There are several municipalities and 23 First Nations communities that border the Highway of Tears. So First Nations, particularly First Nations Canada, is a term used to identify Indigenous peoples in Canada who are neither Inuit or Métis. Traditionally, First Nations in Canada were peoples who lived south of the tree line and mainly south of the Arctic Circle. There are 634 recognized First Nation governments or bands across Canada, and roughly half of those are located in Ontario and British Columbia. So under charter jurisprudence, First Nations are a, quote, designated group end quote, along with women, visible minorities, and people with physical or mental disabilities. First Nations are not defined as a visible minority by the criteria of Statistics Canada. Now, North American Indigenous peoples have cultures spanning thousands of years. Some of their oral traditions accurately describe historical events, such as the Cascadia earthquake of 1700 and the 18th century Tiaxcone eruption. Written records began with the arrival of European explorers and colonists during the Age of Discovery in the late 15th century. So, like, European accounts by trappers, traders, and explorers, and missionaries, they give evidence to this early contact culture. And a lot of what we're seeing that was written down is corroborated by the oral histories passed down by these nations. 
Now, in addition, archaeological and anthropological research, as well as linguistics, have helped scholars piece together kind of an understanding of these ancient cultures and historic peoples using a lot of their oral traditions and storytelling as reference points, since we have been able to see that for the most part, they're pretty accurate and reliable. Nice. So when did they really start investigating into the Highway of Tears? The first investigation into the Highway of Tears was December of 1998. A number of serial killers have been linked to Highway 16 and have been charged. They include Brian Peter Arp and Cody Legabokov. Sounds like some possible future episodes. Yes, definitely. Although not publicly implicated in any Highway of Tears cases, Bobby Jack Thaller was implicated in a number of EPANA cases. However, he died in prison and was not charged in any of the Highway of Tears cases. And I'll get into EPANA here in a second. Ministerial Assistant George Gredis was accused in an official government report of being irresponsible in 2015 as he triple-deleted all emails related to the Highway of Tears from an email account of Tim Duncan, who was the former executive assistant to Transportation Minister Todd Stone. Triple-deleting is the act of transferring the email to a deleted folder on a computer system, deleting the email from the folder, and then overwriting the backup that permits the system to retrieve deleted items. By deleting these emails, it is stated that the government breached the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act. Gredis was convicted of one count of lying to the British Columbia Privacy Commissioner and fined $2,500. In 2005, the RCMP, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, launched EPANA, a provincially funded project. It was started with a focus on some of the unsolved disappearances and murders of women and female children along Highway 16. The unit started with three cases in 2005, then it became nine cases in 2006, but by 2007 had grown to 18 cases. EPANA sought to discover if there was a single serial killer or a multitude of killers operating along the highway. EPANA investigators followed the criteria of the victims being female, participating in a high-risk lifestyle, known to hitchhike, and were last seen or bodies were discovered within a mile of Highway 16, Highway 97, and Highway 5. In 2009 to 2010, EPANA received over $5 million in funding annually, but has since declined due to budget restrictions and cutbacks. In 2014, the task force had dropped from 70 officers in 2010 to just 12 officers. EPANA is not Highway of Tears, and Highway of Tears is not EPANA, but some cases overlap one another. So we're discussing the multitude of cases that you're finding here. Mm-hmm great number of these have to do with indigenous peoples. The National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls concluded in its 2019 final report that in fact the Canadian state had perpetrated genocide against indigenous people. Now this genocide is the underlying cause of the contemporary murders and disappearances of indigenous girls. So this is kind of one of those moments where we can see a bit of a ripple effect crimes that the Canadian government had committed against Indigenous people is still bearing effects and fruit today. As I said before, dear listeners, there is a lot of darkness that we're going to get into a bit later, but this is kind of a setup. And again, this is an internal investigation by a Canadian national inquiry. It was set up Mm -hmm. by the Canadian government to do that, and they themselves are saying that genocide has been committed. Genocide's a big word. I mean, that's that's something that we use when we're describing like the Holocaust and whatnot. So let that put 
this into perspective for you. So specifically though, who are we gonna be looking at? So this week we look at the Jack family disappearance from Prince George on August 2nd, 1989. The family consisted of Ronald, Ronnie, Jack, and his partner Doreen and Jack, both of whom were 26, nine-year-old Russell Jack, and four-year-old Ryan Jack. Ronnie and Doreen both grew up in Chislata Reserve, a rural village located at around the center point of Highway 16, just outside of Burns Lake. The town was small, with less than 2,000 residents, and everyone knew one another. The area was ancestral land due to a large population of indigenous people, which included the Jack family. Ronnie and Doreen knew each other from childhood. Ronnie grew up as part of a large family and had five brothers who were all fond of the outdoors. They would go trapping and hunting with their father, and he had a close relationship with his mother, who he called on a regular basis. Ronnie also enjoyed music and dance. Ronnie was an extroverted person. Doreen's sister Maria stated that when she went through difficult times, Ronnie was there for her, supporting her financially to help her take educational courses as well as driving lessons. A hard worker, Ronnie wanted to work and was said to have had a lot of get up and go, as well as a lot of pride. However, Ronnie had also been witnessed abusing Doreen more than once. During one of the attacks against her, Doreen was witnessed laughing. It was either out of embarrassment or she didn't take it seriously. She'd been used to violence from a young age and often saw it as simply part of life. Doreen had a difficult childhood, which included violence, poverty, and sexual abuse from her alcoholic father's friends. She grew up without a mother as she'd abandoned the family, alone with her two sisters, Marlene, who went by Maria, and Lorene. Doreen's father was resentful of being a single parent and often abused them by shooting at them or locking them outside to sleep in the cold. Many times, the sisters would spend time with aunts and uncles or grandparents, and Doreen took on a motherly role for her siblings as she was the oldest. She was hardworking, quiet, and polite, though she did occasionally become rebellious when she drank. Due to the three sisters moving around and living with various family members, they were eventually taken away and enrolled in the Lejac Residential School in Fraser Lake in 1970. This was an even worse situation for them as the Canadian Residential School was full of human rights abuses from staff. So, Canadian Residential Schools. Mm. This is is a, a tough topic to broach, but it's absolutely essential for giving context specifically to what you just mentioned. So the Canadian Indian residential school system was a network of boarding schools for indigenous peoples. Now the network was funded by the Canadian government's department of Indian affairs and administered by Christian churches. Typically the school system was created to isolate indigenous children from the influences of their own culture and religion in order to assimilate them into the dominant Canadian culture. Over the course of the system's more than 100-year existence, around 150,000 children were placed in residential schools nationally. And by the 1930s, about 30% of Indigenous children were attending residential schools. Now, the number of school-related deaths remains unknown due to incomplete records, but estimates range from about 3,200 to over 30,000, mostly from disease. Now, Students in the residential school systems were faced with a multitude of abuses, as you mentioned before, often by teachers, but also by administrators, and this would include sexual and physical assault. They suffered from malnourishment, harsh discipline that would not have been tolerated in any other Canadian school system. Corporal punishment was often justified by a belief that it was the only way to save their souls or to punish and deter runaways whose injuries or deaths sustained in their efforts to return home would have become the legal responsibility of the school. 
So if a student was to run away and have an injury or death, it's seen as the school's fault. Now, overcrowding, poor sanitation, inadequate heating, lack of medical care, it led to very high rates of influenza and tuberculosis. And in one school, the death rate reached 69%. So federal policies that tied funding to enrollment numbers led to sick children being enrolled to boost numbers and thus introducing and spreading even more disease. Now, the problem of unhealthy children was further exacerbated by the conditions of the schools themselves, overcrowding, poor ventilation, poor water quality, bad sewage systems, things of that nature. It's just like pouring gasoline onto a fire. Now, until the late 1950s, when the federal government shifted to a day school integration model, residential schools were severely underfunded and often relied on the forced labor of the students themselves to maintain the facilities. Now, although it was presented as training as artisanal skills, this was just a form of unpaid labor. And you are having children work to maintain these facilities. It's kind of a no-brainer that these facilities are not going to be up to standard. Their work was arduous, and it severely compromised the academic and social development of the students. They were taken out of classrooms. They weren't allowed to socialize because they were working on these projects for the school. Now, school books, textbooks, they were mainly drawn from the curricula of the provincially funded public schools for non-Indigenous students, and teachers at the residential schools were often poorly trained or prepared. During this period, Canadian government scientists would also perform nutritional tests on students and kept some students undernourished as a control sample. It just doesn't get better the deeper you delve into this. That's absolutely so horrendous. It's, it's, it's insane. Remember how I had mentioned the Holocaust and things of that nature earlier? I mean, yeah. I'm sorry to, to throw this out there, and I mean no disrespect to anybody else, but th- these kind of things, they sound almost like Mangala or some of the things that happen at a lot of the concentration camps. As far as the forced labor, as far as the testing of of medicines and creating a control group by undernourishing children like this reads to me as incredibly horrendous yes so details of the mistreatment of students were published numerous times throughout the 20th century by government officials reporting on school conditions and in the proceedings of civil cases brought forward by survivors seeking compensation for the abuse that they had endured The conditions and the impact of residential schools were also brought to light in popular culture as early as 1967 with a publication of The Lonely Death of Chani Wenjack by Ian Adams. In McLean's and the Indians of Canada Pavilion Expo 67. In the 1990s, investigations and memoirs by former students revealed that many students at residential schools were subjected to severe physical, psychological, and sexual abuse by school staff members and also by older students. Among the former students to come forward was Phil Fontaine, then Grand Chief of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, who in 1990 publicly discussed the abuse he and others suffered while attending Fort Alexander Indian Residential School. Now, after the government closed most of the schools in the 1960s, the work of the indigenous activists and historians led to greater awareness by the public of the damage that the schools had caused, as well as to official government and church apologies and a legal settlement. Uh, 
These gains were achieved through the persistent organizing and advocacy of indigenous communities to draw attention to the residential school system's legacy of abuse, including their participation in hearings of the Royal Commission and Aboriginal peoples. Now, again, to get a bit dark, the residential school deaths were common and they were linked to poorly constructed and maintained facilities. Remember, it's the kids that are having to maintain them, underfunded, church run. So the actual number of deaths remains unknown because there was also inconsistent reporting by school officials and the destruction of medical and administrative records in compliance with the retention and disposition policies for government records. So research by the TRC revealed that at least 3,201 students had died, mostly from disease. TRC Chair Justice Murray Sinclair has suggested that the number of deaths may exceed 6,000 and a vast majority of those deaths occurring before 1950s. Now, in May of 2021, however, and I do remember when this happened, and I'm sure that you probably do too, remains believed to be those of 215 children were found buried on the site of the Kalooms Indian Residential School in Kalooms, British Columbia. And this was actually on one of these First Nations lands. The remains were located with the assistant of a ground penetrating radar specialist and that First Nations chief, Roseanne Casimir, wrote that the deaths were believed to have been undocumented and that work was underway to determine if related records were held at the Royal British Columbia Museum. Then in June on the 23rd, 2021, an estimated 751 unmarked graves were found on the site of the Maryville Indian Residential School and Maryville, Saskatchewan, on the lands of the Cowessus First Nation. Some of these graves predated the establishment of the residential school, and on June 24, 2021, Chief Cadmus DeLorma of the Cowessus First Nation held a virtual press conference, and from June 2nd to the 23rd, they found an estimated 751 unmarked graves. Now, they have stated that they don't know if these graves were never marked. It's just that currently they are unmarked. So, Take that for what you will, but it definitely shows what this this woman and her her sisters had been through. The residential school system and Justin Trudeau has apologized for it. It's it's horrendous. Um, It's something that we need to acknowledge has happened. You know, we need to try and see what we can do to make things at least somewhat better. But. It's, it's a study and case point of how forced integration is terrible. Like they were taking away this, these children's religion, their language, their culture, and doing it in such a way that it created very, very damaged children who then in turn become very, very damaged adults. So did the sisters talk about it at all? They did. The sisters would later describe the physical and verbal abuse that they endured. Nuns wouldn't allow them to acknowledge that they were related to one another, telling them they were worthless and physically assaulting them. The sisters were never able to become close to one another due to these abuses. Luckily, Le Jacques Residential School closed in 1976. Doreen was 13, Maria was 10, and Laureen was 9. The state then placed the girls in various federally funded institutions in Prince George, where they would have home visitation with their father. Maria and Loreen were placed in a home together, but Doreen was placed in a live-in Catholic-run high school. There she met Ronnie, and they began dating. 
Towards the end of her placement, Doreen was raped by another student and became pregnant at 17. She never reported it to the police. And on February 28, 1980, she gave birth to Russell Jack, whom she loved very much. She and Ronnie lost contact. After giving birth, Doreen went to stay with her father, who had remarried at this time. However, there was tension between the women. In 1982, her father passed away from cancer. At this point, the three sisters decided they should find their biological mother and hope to reconnect with her, introduce her to her grandchild. They did eventually find her living in a motel. She was aggressive when they found her, and Maria would later say that their mother said, I got rid of you a long time ago. What makes you think that I want something to do with you now? Doreen, who is usually stoic, was devastated. In 1982, Doreen and Ronnie met again and began dating once more. She moved in with him and his parents, Mabel and Casimel, in South Bank. Doreen and Mabel got along well, and this period of time was happy for the couple. Doreen became pregnant and had a baby, Ryan Jack, on July 26, 1985. Ronnie treated Russell as his own. However, at some point, things became rocky in the relationship. Ronnie had been explosive to Doreen and attacked her. Doreen began drinking heavily. Doreen was a stay-at-home mom, and Ronnie worked, at first doing odd jobs, then at a sawmill, where he worked until he hurt his back. The family moved to Prince George in 1988 or 1989. They hoped that since there was a higher population, there may be better work opportunities for them. They rented a small home in the center of Prince George, so close to Highway 16 that it could be both seen and heard from the window. They lived there for about a year, though Ronnie struggled to find steady employment. A cousin stated that Doreen stole cough medicine for the boys, and Ronnie told his mother he owed someone money, though he didn't specify how much or who he owed. They did receive state support of about $15,140 Canadian annually, which amounts to about $30,000 Canadian dollars now. Ronnie borrowed a small, undetermined amount of money to help pay the debt back from his mother, and Doreen played bingo in hopes of winning. On Tuesday, August 1st, 1989, in Prince George, Ronnie was unemployed. He decided to head to the pub called The First Leader, which was about a halfway point between his home and Highway 16. First Leader was a dive bar located in a bad part of town and has since closed down. However, when it was open, it had very negative reviews and was known to be less than reputable. Regardless of reputation, this was the closest pub and liquor store nearby. Neither Ronnie nor Doreen owned a car, so when they wanted to drink, First Leader was their only viable option. That night, Ronnie was drinking by himself, and at some point in the night, a man walked in. He was a Caucasian male between the ages of 35 and 40, between 6 feet and 6 feet 6 inches tall, and a 200 to 275 pounds. He had reddish-brown hair and a full beard, and was seen wearing a ball cap, red checkered work shirt, faded blue jeans, blue nylon jacket, and work boots with leather fringes over the toes. The two somehow struck up a conversation, though it is not known who approached to. The man offered Ronnie and Doreen both high-paying jobs that would last between 10 days and two weeks, with the possibility of future employment to come. It was at a logging camp or ranch about 40 kilometers west of Prince George on Highway 16. So the practice of illegal logging, which to me, this is kind of what it sounds like. And it's what I've always assumed this was, even though it was never expanded upon in any of the information that I've read about the cases. But illegal logging is really, there's no real common agreed upon definition of it, but the Royal Institute of International Affairs and International Policy Analysis Institutes gives the definition of illegal logging is framed by the assertion of nation state sovereignty, 
and illegal logging takes place when timber is harvested, transported, bought, or sold in violation of national laws. The harvesting process itself may be illegal, including corrupt means to gain access to forests, extraction without permission from protected areas, cutting of protected species, or extraction of timber in excess of agreed limits. Illegalities may also occur during transport, including illegal processing and export, misdeclaration to customs, and avoidance of taxes and other charges. The other thing that they tend to do is they tend to pay their workers under the table, usually in cash. It is typically well paid from what I understand and something that a down on his luck man hoping to provide for his family might really, really take a long, hard look at doing, especially if he's not having to be separated from his family, as this guy says he's found work for his wife as well. and he had told him as well that, you know, his, his children could come. So, I mean, there was, what's that old phrase? If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And I think that's kind of the situation that we're seeing here with, with Ronnie and the unnamed Caucasian male. Right. But I digress. So what happened next? So at around 11 PM, witnesses saw Ronnie and the man leave the pub. The man accompanied Ronnie back to his home and waited while the family packed their belongings. According to phone records, Ronnie called his brother at 11.16 p.m. to see if he could take the children, but he wasn't able to. Between 1.15 a.m. and 1.21 a.m. on Wednesday, August 2nd, 1989, Ronnie called his parents. His mother, Mabel, answered, and he relayed the same information that he gave to his brother. He and Doreen had been offered good-paying jobs at a logging camp. He told his mother that the camp had daycare and they would definitely be back before Russell was due to start school in September. Ronnie ended the call by saying something to the effect of, if I don't come back, come looking for me. Mabel stated that he didn't sound nervous, and their conversation was brief. She knew that Ronnie was desperate for work and wanted to encourage him, and she assumed they'd be back before Russell began school in the fall. Doreen's sister, Lorene, lived next door. She saw her sister that night when she came to ask if she'd be able to babysit sometime during the next week, Doreen was busy, so she didn't interrupt, but did recall seeing a white truck outside. She stated she saw, quote-unquote, Doreen running in and out of the house the night they went missing, and I wish I had known that was what was happening to them when I saw the white pickup truck. Something told me I better stay away. She did not see the family leave. Doreen's cousin also claimed to have been at the property around midnight. He provided two essential facts. He was the only person to see the man, and he stated that the family left just after the phone call was made to Ronnie's mother. However, the cousin was deemed to be an unreliable witness because despite being with the family for over an hour, he was unable to provide an alibi or any more information beyond the physical description of the man. The description was also not obtained until December 1989, as according to records, the RCMP did not pursue proper investigation until several months after the Jack family disappeared due to an alleged miscommunication. The police would also later admit that they did not know where the sketches of the man had come from, just that they were in the case file. Mabel was the one to report the family missing around August 25th to 26th, 1989. She was particularly concerned due to Ronnie's lack of contact. Over the course of the next few days, the police met Mabel at the Jack residence to search and take pictures. It was fairly obvious that the family intended to return as they left the majority of their furniture and clothes behind, along with documents pertaining to the children attending school. At the initial police contact, they were likely made aware of the fact that Ronnie said he was taking his family to work and that there was an unknown man in the mix. Initially, they did not know how the family was traveling as Doreen's cousin was not aware that they were missing and had not been interviewed. 
On Tuesday, August 29th, 1989, an alert was issued as follows. Quote, unquote, Ron and Doreen Jack, Burns Lake, B.C., Paul Mabel Jack. The only paper that printed the alert was Nanaimo Daily Free Press, which served the Nanaimo and Vancouver Island, which was over 10 hours drive from the area where the Jack family was last seen. The Prince George RCMP issued details to the local press on August 29, 1989, but only one paper picked up the story on August 30th, the Prince George Citizen. The article is full of incorrect information, such as the headline reading Burns Family Missing, despite the fact that the family lived in Prince George for a year. It also noted that Ronnie had spoken to his father instead of his mother, and the statement reads, it was possible he found further employment and hasn't bothered to phone home. No national papers covered the story. On September 7, 1989, the family was, quote-unquote, reported found in the Prince George Citizen. Investigations would list this mistake as a miscommunication, though no clarification was ever provided. Around this time, Mabel moved into the Jack family home, where Ronnie's parents and siblings would go searching for them. They did this until mid to late October when the first snow came. Some months after the initial missing persons cases were filed, it was mid-October to mid-November, the family contacted the RCMP to obtain an update, only to be told the case had been closed because the Prince George RCMP were under the impression that the family had been found. At this point, the investigation was reopened. An article was published in the Prince George Citizen on November 25, 1989, retracting the September article, stating that the Previously reported sighting turned out to be a false alarm. Mabel was interviewed directly by the media and made it clear that she was close to her son and that their being missing was unusual. The RCMP began investigating in earnest, discovering the key to the unknown man. They also learned that the cousin was at the property while the family was packing. In February 1990, Crime Stoppers created a missing persons poster and a $2,000 reward was offered for any information leading to the whereabouts of the Jack family. Mabel was giving interviews with the media and stated, I can't stay at home anymore. I can't stand it here, not knowing what has happened to my boy and his family. Media coverage only lasted for a, about a year. And then between 1992 and 1995, there was no known coverage of the Jack family. On Sunday, January 28, 1996, an anonymous call came in at 8.33 a.m. to the Vanderhoof RCMP regarding the Jack family. The RCMP investigated the lead, and in early March, investigators appealed for the caller to phone in again. Initially, investigators did not release the contents of the call, but a week later, they played the call to the media. It was revealed that the call came from a house in Stony Creek, which was an extremely small town near Vanderhoof. A male caller stated that the, quote-unquote, the Jack family are buried at the south end of something ranch, and then hung up. However, there had been a party at the home the night of January 27, 1996, that extended into the early hours of January 28. Police had been dispatched to the location, but did not know at the time of the phone call. The Manica Express published an article on April 3, 1996, stating the RCMP investigators would be in Vanderhoof to see information on the missing family, and that experts had not been able to decipher the ranch location from the tape. In the early 2000s, a number of articles about the Jack family appeared in various newspapers. Posters were released in British Columbia and parts of Alberta in an attempt to gain new leads, and there were over 700 tips. It took over a decade for a large newspaper, the Vancouver Sun, to even mention the Jack family. Investigators, while quote-unquote reluctant to speculate about the family's case, are not ruling out foul play according to one article. Two other articles state that investigators have utilized hypnosis and psychics, as well as stating they have done excavations. 
Nothing big has been reported as to the family's disappearance, especially given the nature of an entire family vanishing into the night. In comparison to other missing persons cases of similar nature, the Jack family received significantly less media coverage with less information known than this one. A number of digs have been carried out as of August 2019 with ground penetrating radar and heavy equipment, but no signs have ever been found. Members of the Jack family have questioned the accuracy of the digs. If you have any information pertaining to the missing Jack family, please contact Prince George RCMP at 250-561-3300, referencing case 1989-28607. You can also email the National Center for Missing Persons and Unidentified Remains, and I'll provide that email address in show notes, referencing case 2014-002868. And as always, you can contact the Crime Stoppers anonymously. So this case is one that has weighed heavily on me for quite some time, as Mm -hmm. you and I have discussed it in private several, several times. The willful, I would say, and I know I'm going out on a branch here, and perhaps I'm a bit harsh on this, but it feels like willful incompetence of the Mm -hmm. highest order you have newspapers printing the family's been found you have newspapers printing that the family's from a different town that they talk to a different parent saying things that are completely out of character for this family where he's like oh well maybe my son found a job and didn't contact anyone when he was in constant communication with his mother these things just they just don't add up And the incompetence that was displayed here very well could have cost a family their life. Now, we don't know. We don't know what happened. We don't know where they are. We don't know their status. Investigators themselves are obviously, as you said, reluctant to speculate about what's happened. Yeah, it seems like they're reluctant to speculate in general. Just they're I, I don't know if it's the incompetence or the fact that they botched this case so badly. They're just not willing to, I mean, there was, it was, I had a hard time finding as much information as I did find about this case, given that it's been over 30 years now. Yeah. I mean, not only were they reluctant to speculate, they were reluctant to investigate. Exactly. Um, I mean, the family has been more than vocal about how absolutely unhelpful the our CMP has been for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, they're, they're, it's so important in the early stages to try and catch these things. This is, again, I say it so often, help us find these people so they don't end up on our show. And yet, here, here this is, especially given the long amount of time that has passed since the abduction to now. I feel safe in speculating that the chances of a happy reunion happening are very, very slim. I feel very comfortable saying that. And that makes me terribly sad. Yeah. And when you, when you read the articles, when you take the time to, to dig through it and to dig into this case as rebel has so brilliantly done this week, you do find a total lack of regard for this family. Like when you're reading the the police reports or the police interviews with, with newspapers, 
it really feels and reads like they couldn't be bothered. And the lack of information, I mean, when you guys see our show notes, we, we do give sources and whatnot. And it's so hard to find sources on this case itself. You guys will, will be able to see that. My sources are a bit different because I provide side information, so that's a bit different. But the amount of work that was put in to dig up this amount of information comparatively to some of our past cases, it's it's an incredible mismatch and difference. Yeah, there's times where there's like so much information that it's hard to sift through it all. This is not that case. No, this no, exactly. Was so scarce and so difficult to find information. And you would think that with such a, I mean, such a disappearance of four people, that there would be more information out and available. And there's just not. And two of them, very young children. Yes. This, I mean, again, we, we, you don't see it very often that an entire family goes missing overnight, especially with the amount of witnesses that were there. People saw them at the bar. People saw them at their house. Like, mm-hmm. there, there's, there, there was not a lack of, of information that could have been given to the police if they had followed up in a timely manner. I'm not saying that it could have saved lives, but it, maybe it could have put this family's minds and hearts at ease. So mm-hmm. this is, like I said, this is one that has been weighing on me heavily. We've been discussing this case being upcoming for, what, what is it? This is episode 14. So for 14 episodes, we've been we've been getting ready for this one. So, I mean, I think we've covered an amazing amount of information in in this episode itself but if nothing else i hope that this episode lets people see the plight of a different group of people and see what they've been through and see what they're still going through and maybe let that weigh on your hearts for a little bit maybe go out and check it out for yourself see what's happened yeah look into this because we we highlighted the jack family because they're one of the more famous cases that came from Highway 16. And again, one of the most famous cases was hard to dig up information. But excluding the Jack family, there's about 40 people that have gone missing on this highway. Mm-hmm. And the most recent one was just last year in 2023, in October. So go out there, look at the cases. Anytime you can create some buzz about it, it does it does help with that. And it also creates awareness. So talk with it amongst yourselves and your friends. Get some of that information out there that you might not normally have. It's definitely worth it. And anytime that we can have that kind of conversation, even though it might be a little bit uncomfortable, it's it's definitely a positive one to have. Yes. Well, Rebel, I think this emotional roller coaster has has been about good enough for me this week (laughs) yes i agree so if people out there have listened to us and have enjoyed it and want to tell their friends and family where they can hear us where can they find us so we're on podbean as well as most of the major places that you can host a podcast so apple spotify amazon etc you can always find us on social media sites at Murderosity or Murderosity Podcast. 
And we're always looking for requested cases. We have uh, several cases coming up that are requested from people. So we're always looking for new cases, especially missing persons, because it's just it's sometimes it's difficult to find information on missing persons cases. So if you have any case that you'd like to air, then go ahead and give us an email at murderosity at gmail.com. Awesome. And we do read everything that you guys send to us. We read all your emails, your comments. We we do definitely take that into consideration. Like Rebel mentioned, we are going to be getting into our fans' requests starting next week, I believe, in fact. so yes. Yeah, we pushed a couple episodes in between the first requested one, but we're getting to those now. So it's going to be an exciting time. It is really, really looking forward to that. We do love to hear from you guys. So, yeah, well, I think that's going to about do it for me this week, Rebel. Same here. Uh, All right. Well, you all stay safe out there and we'll catch you on the next one.